we're going to be reading the passage that we've been reading for um, a few weeks here um, in the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6, verses uh, 10 through 20, which is um, the text on spiritual warfare. And um, um, I have uh, Johnny is going to come and read, and uh, you can follow along. Let's stand together as we read this passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Lord, we ask that um, today as we open up your word, that you would let the words that we study leap off the page into our souls, that you would make them vivid, powerful, and fresh to our hearts. Allow me as your messenger, Lord, simply to be the vehicle through which you work, that you would be seen, that you, Lord, would be adored, that you would be understood, and that our relationship with you, Lord, would be clarified and invigorated, Lord, by our time in your word this morning. We ask in your precious holy name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Um, you know, the history books uh, tell us a lot of stories about battles that have taken place through the ages. And I'm always intrigued about those battles that um, are won when the odds were so insurmountably against them. And there's three that, that come to mind as I think about um, these kinds of battles. The first one is the battle at Agincourt. You may know the story. Um, about five or 6,000 um, English soldiers. Um, this is during the Hundred Years' War. This is back in 1415 or so. Outside the, the village of Agincourt um, came up to about 25 to about 30,000 French uh, soldiers. We're talking about you know, knights in shining armor, that kind of an era. And it just looked like the British were going to get slaughtered. And what happened was two things, basically. Um, the weather changed, and the French were so consumed with um, wearing their heavy armor and being men-at-arms, the guys that run around with axes and maces and things like that, that they could not move because the ground got so muddy. And the British archers simply stood there and fired arrows into that army and decimated them. So 6,000 
took on 30,000, but it was the 6,000 that won that day. It's an amazing reality. Another one that I read recently is the Battle of Mont Gizzard, which took place in the Holy Land um, when um, the, uh, I would say the Crusader army, which was actually at that time pretty small, maybe about 4,000 um, that were together. Um, most of those were men who were infantry, meaning they were walking. There was 80 Templar knights that kind of led this battle, but they were basically uh, running quickly. They were exhausted, but they cut off the approaching army from Egypt that was coming from the south, and it was about 27,000 um, soldiers under Saladin, the leader at that point in time, who was seeking to approach Jerusalem and overtake it. And 4,000 of these soldiers um, took on this army. And what happened was Saladin basically was just lazy. He's like, ah, they're such a small force, they're not gonna do any damage. But the Templars who were willing to fight and willing to give their lives, they went in between Jerusalem and they charged at this army and ended up routing them and Saladin only got away because he was able to get on a camel and rush out of the battle and head back to Egypt. Again, incredible odds, 4,000 against 20,000, and yet they came out victorious. Another one that um, I really wasn't aware of until recently was the siege or the Battle of Vienna, and this um, took place in 1683. I don't know if you are aware of this one, but the, the, the history books say that this is one of the most significant battles that changed the course of history from, a, from the perspective of the Ottoman Empire seeking to continue to grow. They desired to come and not only take um, Vienna, um, but having taken Vienna, their desire as a Muslim entity and army was to head to Rome, and they wanted to turn Rome into a mosque. That was their goal. And so... We had uh, Mufasa, I know you watch, you know, you watch uh, TV and you watch Disney and stuff and these are names, but they come from history. Mufasa led this army of 300,000 soldiers and they laid siege to Vienna and Vienna had very few as far as soldiers were concerned, maybe about 40,000 of their own. And it wasn't until a couple of armies came to support them that they had maybe about 80,000, but there was a, a Polish king that came and he kind of took charge of the situation and he said this is what we have to do and he took his 20,000 men and artillery cannons up onto this ridge and from this ridge was able to fire down into these 3,000 men and routed them and that friends that that changed the course of where history could have been now friends I, I share this with you um, because of the reality that we are in a battle. And as I, as I s looked over those stories of those battles, there were some common themes that I just wanna, I wanna present to you. There was the prospect of certain defeat and death. And there's something about that that brings something out in people. They either run away or they stand courageously and they do courageous things. And then there's strong leadership that was able to look at the situation and, and, and go against the odds. And then, of course, there's careful and thoughtful strategy that is necessary in the middle of that context. They weren't willing to give up. 
I mean, just think about the Crusaders. If they had not have gone with their meager force against them, Jerusalem would have been overrun. And they knew that. People would have died. And, and so they, they put their lives on the line. They, they do the most unthinkable thing and charge into this huge army thinking, I'm going to die. And yet they do it with strategy and with care. And the last thing is the skillful use of weapons. It was the longbow that was England's strength in all those battles during the medieval times. It was the apathy of Saladin who didn't think that a small little army was able to do anything to stop him from overrunning Jerusalem. But it was the razor-edge strategy of the Templar Knights that routed that enemy. It was the arrogance of Mustafa who, who, who did not consider the hill as important and so didn't even put any scouts up there so that when the Polish leader went up there, there was no one to oppose him. And it was the cannons on that day that totally wiped out that impressive, massive 3,000 number or 300,000 number army. And friends, see, these are common realities. Leadership, the prospect of death and destruction. Um, this, this careful and thoughtful strategy and the skillful use of weapons. And I, I share that again to say that we are in a battle. We are in a battle. And friends, we have to accept the reality that that battle is real. And it's a battle that you and I face, not against flesh and blood, but against the devil and his spiritual forces. Now, the point here is this, that what appears to be a physical battle on our part is, in reality, taking place in the spiritual realm. That means when you and I are tempted to sin, when we're tempted to lie, when we're tempted to react in anger, when we're tempted to, to lust, or just add whatever word would be a sinful word there, the battle, although appearing to take place in the physical realm, is actually a spiritual battle. And so we have to see it in those terms. It's taking place in our minds, in our hearts, but it's taking place in the spiritual realm. And the battle is continual, it's purposeful, and it's personal. And Satan wants to do everything he can to hinder God's um, children from growing in their walk and from serving him. And so he comes at us with all sorts of arrows to stop us from doing what God wants us to do. But God then gives us armor, spiritual armor. And that armor is basically, um, as Paul reveals it for us in this passage, um, is a metaphor to help us understand the different aspects of the gospel that are critically helpful for us when we are facing or we're in the middle of battle. It's during those times that we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. And so when I say preach the gospel to myself, I'm saying if I'm in the middle of the battle and, and, and Satan is coming at me and saying, look, you sin, you're really not as righteous as you say you are. I have to preach the gospel to myself. Just like Victor was saying this morning as we were, we were preparing or in the middle of the songs, he's talking about this, this righteousness that God gives us. It's not my righteousness, it's Christ's righteousness and God looks at me through Christ and he doesn't see my sinfulness, he sees Christ's righteousness and so I have to preach that to myself. 
to get myself to the place where I see myself as I really am in Christ. And that is what Ephesians is all about, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And so now, when we come to this armor of God, it's like Paul is saying, all these are aspects of the gospel that we have to remind ourselves of so that we don't, uh, we don't lose confidence in the battle and that we can certainly um, fight the battle with security and confidence and we can stand and we can face the enemy because we know those things are true. So righteousness, faith, and peace, and salvation are all aspects that we need to preach to ourselves to remind ourselves that we are in Christ. But not only do we have God's armor, we have also been gifted two weapons, the word of God and prayer. And today we're gonna focus on the sword of the spirit the word of God, and that comes from verse 17 here. It says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Let's think a little bit about what that sword is. Now, a lot of times when we think about the sword in battle, we think about the, the, the big broad sword that, that a soldier would wield, you know, this big two-handed thing that you, you, know, you move around like this, and that's not the sword that was being talked about. This is the, the Roman short two-edged sword that was used to cut and to thrust in the kind of face-to-face, breath-to-breath, wrestling, battlefield battle. This is, the, this is the tool that God is talking about through his word. It's the same sword that Peter used when he cut off the ear of Malchus. Remember that? Uh, when, when they came to arrest Jesus. It's the same sword that the writer of Hebrews talks about. Hebrews chapter four and verse 12, a key passage of scripture on this subject. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of the joints and marrow, and discerning the, in, uh, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. This is the word of God that is like a sword that penetrates deep into the soul. And it is the sword of the word of God that each believer is now commanded to wield as they fight against the spiritual battle or in the spiritual battle against Satan and his forces. And so clothed in the armor of God, um, we have this sword and we're supposed to fight with it. But where does it come from? How are we to use it? And how are we to train for battle with it? And that's what we want to talk about today. So let's begin here with what I'm calling the strength of the sword revealed. Now you've probably seen things like the Lord of the Rings and, and, and kind of genres like that. And, and one of the big things in the Lord of the Rings, of course, is the sword and where it came from and where it was forged and, and the power that's with it. And there's a sense in which there's some of that kind of metaphor stuff that's going on here to help us understand how important and how powerful this sword is that God has given us. So what is this sword that has been given to every believer? Where does it come from? What power does it wield? And the first thing we need to recognize here is that the source of the word is the Holy Spirit. Notice what it says again, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. The sword of the Spirit. In other words, Paul is saying the sword of the Spirit 
is the sword that comes from the Spirit. He originated it. He crafted it. He forged the sword into existence. And that's what Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is breathed out by God. It's breathed out. And the word breathed out, the idea there is that God's spirit breathed out the word of God through human authors using their unique personalities and styles. But ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit that breathed it into existence. So when we say this is the word of God, we recognize that human authors were used to write the word of God, but behind their writing was the moving of the Holy Spirit, the inspiring of the Holy Spirit, the breath of God. Okay? Now you can go to uh, Peter's uh, book, 2 Peter, Chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, and here's what he says. Knowing, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture, in other words, no account of Scripture here, comes from someone's own interpretation. And what he's saying is, you know, there wasn't a guy that just came up with an idea and said, I'm going to write this down in Scripture. That's not how Scripture came to be. He says in verse 21, "For, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that expression, carried along, uh, the picture there is of a boat with a sail and the wind moving on that sail and moving and carrying that boat along across that ocean or that lake. That's the picture that is being used here to describe how the Holy Spirit created the word of God through human um, people. We call this the doctrine of inspiration. Now a little, some technical definitions, maybe again to, to help us think through what this means. Inspiration refers to the way in which God's self-revelation has come to be expressed in the words of the Bible. What God wants to say, he has said, and it's been recorded in the word of God, the Bible. Inspiration is the act of God moving certain men to write in such a way that the result of that writing, the scriptures, are the very word of God. Or to say it even another way, inspiration is the activity of the spirit of God whereby he superintended the human authors of scripture um, so that their writings became a normative expression in human language of God's word to humanity. That was Bruce Milne's definition of inspiration. So bottom line is this. God revealed himself through human authors and what he has revealed now has been recorded in what we call now the word of God. And because that Bible came from the Holy Spirit, we can be confident that it is reliable. Now what do we mean by the fact that it is reliable? We mean that it's trustworthy. We mean that it's not going to mislead you. It won't lead you down the path of folly or foolishness. God is not playing a game with you when you listen to his word and you follow it. He's not up there in heaven saying, I said this and they're actually believing me. No, it's trustworthy. It's not some game. It's not some video game adventure. This is trustworthy. This is real. Secondly, it is without error. Now, certainly the Bible 
um, truthfully contains the record of lies, deceptions, and error, especially through the stories of those who want to live apart from God and only for self. It exposes the follies of lies and deception. But because the Bible has been supervised by the Holy Spirit, down to its very words, even the, the jot and the tittle, that would be the, the line you used to cross the T and the, the dot would to, 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 to dot your I. Even that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit as part of um, God revealing his word. And that being true, we can be confident that it will be free from error. So Bruce Milne says this, so whenever the Bible prescribes the content of our belief, in other words, doctrine, or the pattern of our living, that would be ethics, or records actual events, history, it speaks the truth. I just challenge you, throughout history, the Bible has been under attack and under attacked, and a lot of the, the reason it's under attack is because, well, it's not exactly accurate historically, and so they don't want to believe what the Bible says, it must be something else, and come to find out, they do an archaeological dig, and they find out, oh, the Bible was true after all. Okay? Just, it's supported so many times throughout history as being accurate and trustworthy and reliable. And the fact that the word of God is equated with the spirit of God also teaches us that the spirit of God always works in conjunction with the word of God. So when the word of God is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit's at work. The Holy Spirit is doing his thing through the word of God. And that's why we must be really, really careful that we don't somehow um, allow ourselves to simply drift away and live our lives by an impression from the Holy Spirit that has come from outside of the Word of God. Anything that we might think is the Holy Spirit at work directing us must, must be found in Scripture, must be sourced in Scripture, must match Scripture. If it contradicts Scripture, it isn't true. Okay, so we've got to be really, really careful because the Holy Spirit is at work through the Word of God. It is the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Now, the source of the Word is the Holy Spirit. But he's not just the source. There's something else that's going on here. It's not like the, the Holy Spirit came and, and made the Word of God and then said, all right, there it is, now I'm leaving. No, <laughs> He now is the power behind the word of God. You might have said the Godhead is the power behind the word of God. You know, the sword was not used in battle as a signaling device, as some kind of decoration, or simply to tap the enemy on the shoulder to get their attention. The sword was used to kill. The sword was used to put to death. The sword was used as a powerful weapon. Now, so much so, in our reality, in God's purposes, God spoke the world into in existence by the word of God, Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Not only did he speak the world into existence, God carries out his plans with the word of God. I want to show you another passage of scripture, Isaiah 55, 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, 
so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. This is an incredible picture, water coming down and, and giving life and, and joy and satisfaction all around. It's just like the word of God that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return empty, but it shall accomplish what I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God is accomplishing his purposes through the word of God. That's what he says. God also reconciles sinners to himself by the word of God. James 1.18, of his own will he brought us forth, how? By the word of truth. 1 Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Again, I'm just showing you different ways that God is using the word. It is a powerful vehicle that God has given us, and he speaks his word, and he creates the universe. He speaks his word, and he brings um, his purposes uh, to, to, to be in this world. He speaks his word, and people are reconciled to him. He also speaks his word, and when he does that, he equips his followers to do his will. 2 Timothy 3.17, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And that's on the heels then of all scriptures given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. The goal here being the equipping of the believer. And finally, God moves us toward maturity in Christ through his word. And that's Psalm 19 verse seven and so many others. The law of the Lord is perfect of course, the law of the Lord is the word of God, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. My friends, just think about this. The strength of this sword is not found in the person wielding it. The strength of the sword comes from God himself. He created the word, and he uses the word powerfully and he's given us his word as his sword now to wield in the battle against Satan and his spiritual forces so we've seen the strength of this sword revealed now I want you to think about the strategy that God is calling us to employ as we as we use the word of God and we're called to fight in this battle fitted out with the armor provided by God and with the sword of the Spirit. But what is it the sword of the, that God has created us to be used for? How are we to wield that sword? So when I take up the word to fight spiritual warfare, I have in my hands a most powerful weapon designed for both defensive and offensive battle. So it's used to defend the soldier in the middle of battle and it's used to attack the enemy and drive him away. So we're gonna look first of all at the defensive strategy. So this, this sword is used to defend the believer. And of course when we think about the defensive strategy, the best place for us to go is to look at the one uh, who is the best example, and that is Jesus himself, who was tempted by the devil. And I wanna encourage you to turn to uh, Matthew chapter four. We'll begin reading in verses three, we'll go through verse 10, but in this passage in this encounter that Jesus has with Satan um, Satan comes at him and he tempts him three times 
and each time Jesus comes back and says, but is it not written? And then he quotes scripture. He quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3 first. Then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16. And then he quotes Deuteronomy 6 and verse 13. In other words, Jesus is using the word of God to defend the temptation of Satan. But I want us to see it here, beginning at verse three. And the tempter that Satan came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to be, become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory and he said to, the, to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you, have, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Now there's two basic lessons that we want to pull from this passage. All right, let's begin with the first one. Did you notice that Satan quoted scripture to Jesus? I should tell you something that he knows the Bible, but he doesn't use it to glorify God. He uses it to twist what God says and to make you think things that are true, are true when they're not, they're false. And that's why we have so many false religions today. That's why there are so many people that are not following the teachings of God's word, but are still under the umbrella of Christianity. They twist the word of God. Satan loves to take God's people and distort the word of God. He loves it. You know why? Because he tried to do it with Jesus. And that should be a caution to us that we need to know God's word so that when we hear error, knowing it's not just coming from a person, it is coming ultimately from the devil himself who is trying to trip us up in our growth in Christ and our usefulness for the kingdom. But I also want you to notice that if Christ, the divine man, in battling Satan while here on earth did so with the sword of the word, how much more do we frail men and women need to wield that same sword if we are to be victorious? If Jesus used the word, then we ought to be using it too. But how can we use the word if we don't know the word? I mean, how, just think about it. You know, here's a soldier going out for battle, and someone says, hey, you got your armor on, but where's your sword? Ah, you know, I don't like it. I'm just going to go fight without it. Or, you know, they, he walks into battle with the sword, and he's like, why aren't you waving it around? Ah, you know, I don't like to use it that way. It bothers me. We come up with all sorts of excuses. Listen, God has, has blessed us with his word. Just think about it. What would it be like if we had no Bible? I think about my Russian friends. Many of them, their parents suffered through all sorts of different circumstances, and they may not have had a whole Bible. They may have had bits and pieces of the Bible, and they were thankful when they had a complete Bible that they could read. We go to our houses, and we got you know, 10, 15 Bibles on our shelves. 
Now it's no surprise then that from the same book that Jesus quotes, the book of Deuteronomy, we find the following instructions from God through the lips of Moses about the word. Deuteronomy 32, 46 and following. And he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law for it is no empty word for you but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. And what he's saying is, listen, when you listen to my word, when you follow my word, you understand that following it and listening to it is the basis of your life. The psalmist understands life issues because he says it this way, Psalm 119, verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He understands the word of God is what is necessary so that he will not sin. And the apostle John grasps this also in his, uh, his letter, 1 John chapter 2, verse 14. I write to you, he says, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. And the connection there is that the word of God is the means by which they have overcome the evil one. There is life in this word. So friends, there is this defensive position as a soldier that we must take with the sword of the word of God to fend off the enemy. We follow the example of Christ, but there's also an offensive strategy. Because fighting in a battle is not just a matter of holding your ground. It's also a matter of of jabbing and, and wielding that sword so that you can fend off the enemy and you can attack that particular enemy that's coming at you. Let me remind you of the powerful nature of God's word that's found in Hebrews chapter four and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So it's, it's living, um, it's alive. It's active. Think maggots. Have you seen maggots in a tub? You know what I'm talking about? You look down and they're all like crawling everywhere. I know, it's a wonderful thought. Um, lunch is coming soon, just so you know that, okay? All right. But these maggots, it's just, it's just, there's this constant movement in this tub, right? And, and so just kind of get that idea. When the, the word of God is proclaimed, right now, as we've unpacked the word of God, as it's been read, as I am proclaiming, as I'm preaching, as I'm teaching it in a spiritual realm, it is moving, it is alive, it is active, and it's working into people's hearts. It's penetrating through the soul and the spirit, going down to the very core of our being. And when it gets there, we're either going to welcome it or we're going to fight against it. We're going to either be convicted or we're going to be rebellious. It is powerful and it penetrates, okay? It's an offensive weapon, all right? It's sharp like a razor two-edged sword and it penetrates and pierces. Now, friends, that's why the word of God must be central in preaching, I'm not saying that just because I'm a pastor. I'm not just trying to pat myself on the back when I'm saying this. If you go to a church and the word of God is not being preached, that pastor is not being faithful to his calling. 
to preach in a way that bypasses the word or minimizes the word or simply uses God's word as a springboard for some topic is not what God has called pastors to do. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy, his final letter, he's laying out his kind of final charge, his final commission. He's saying, listen, Timothy, of all things, make sure you do this. In chapter 4 of that letter, 2 Timothy, he says this in verse 1, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. And when you're doing that, be, in, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And when churches stop preaching the word of God, they, they continue preaching. But they can continue preaching things that are not the word of God. And they think that that's where the power is. But friends, there's nothing out there that has power like the word of God. It doesn't compare. In fact, it's empty. And it leaves people anemic. It leaves people hungry. But God says to Timothy, and he says to me, and he says to anyone who has the ministry of teaching, preach, teach the word. We're called to expose it, to explain it, to illustrate it, to apply it, to trust that it does its work in the hearts of people, both believers and unbelievers alike. It's like a, a hot knife through butter and accomplishes all that God intends. So it brings conviction, comfort, and counsel to those who are believing, and it brings resistance, hardness, and rebellion to those who don't believe. Friends, this is one of the strategies, one of the offensive strategies, that in our preaching, the word of God must be central. But I want to apply it a little further now. The word of God also is sufficient for all of our counseling. The word of God is adequate to equip us for every good work, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us. The word of God gives us everything we need for life and godliness, 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. So what's clear from God's word is that man's basic problems stem from one source, that's sin. And only God's word is able to teach how to deal with sin properly. The ungodly, however, reject the counsel of the word of God because they reject the biblical teaching that man's problem is his sin. See, man doesn't like to be responsible for his actions. He wants to blame Others. He wants to point at some other thing as the reason why he behaved this way and why he chose to do that and all this other stuff. It's low self-esteem. It's bad parenting. It's an unloving environment. Or the lie that says, I can't help it. That's just how God created me. Yeah, you were created as a sinner and you have a sin nature as soon as you're born. God knows that. That's why he sent Jesus Christ to the cross to die in your place on that cross so that you could be reconciled if you put your faith and trust in him. The whole point there is that because you are the way you are, you need Christ. You don't use that as an excuse. And as a result, man has forced 
the square block of man's problems into the round hole of psychology that rejects God's counsel. And what should be seen and dealt with as spiritual issues, anxiety, anger, lust, fear, stealing, lying, and so on, have been reclassified as medical issues. And so people are going to the wrong place to find solutions for their spiritual issues. In fact, they don't even want to believe that there is a spiritual battle going on. That's something different. That's maybe just about my eternity. But these spiritual battles are taking place every day. In fact, right now, right now, as the word is going out, there is a battle going on in your heart, and you're saying to yourself, I don't know if I want to believe that. I don't know if what he's saying is true. I don't know. That seems pretty radical. There's a battle going on, and it's a spiritual battle. Now, it's true that biological problems, in other words, problems with the human body can and do affect how you behave. But we must be careful not to excuse bad or sinful behavior because of biological issues. Let me just kind of you know, paint the illustration that I often paint, and that is if I have a headache, that doesn't excuse me for treating you badly or being sinful towards you. And I'm thankful for ibuprofen, okay? There's a balance there, but there is still a spiritual element going on. Even when I don't feel good, I am still responsible for how I behave, okay? If someone goes out and they get drunk, and they say, well, I don't know, I was so drunk, I didn't know what I was doing. I, I shouldn't be held responsible. No, you're responsible. You're responsible because you put it in you. And what you do after that is part of your responsibility. But people will always try and find some excuse, some way to weasel out of personal responsibility. So we can and we must wield the sword of the Spirit with confidence as we counsel others. It is sufficient. But not only that, um, this word, the sword, is the power in our evangelism. It is the power in our evangelism. And that's why the Apostle Paul wrote in his gospel, remember what, what the gospel of John really is. It's a, it's a long tract. It's a long record of who Jesus is, answering the question, who is this Jesus? And he gives us the core reality of what he is saying in that gospel. We studied this a while back. Let me remind you of John 20. 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs, John says, in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so what John is saying is, I've gathered all this data to present to you, and it is the gospel story that is the means by which the Holy Spirit is at work in the life of the person listening. And it is the word of God then that is what actually goes out and convicts people of their sin. It's not your clever argument. Now it's good to be skillful in presenting the gospel. It's good to be clear. It's good to have a, have a plan and, and know kind of what you're saying and, 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 and making sure that you're, you're covering all the bases. But ultimately, it is God who is at work through all of those imperfect things that we are doing. And it's the word of God presented and proclaimed that is powerful to reconcile people to God. 
So on a practical level, friends, at Gateway, our goal is that when we gather as a church or at home group or in evangelistic situations, we're opening up the Word of God. We want to be actually taking people to the Word of God, opening the Bible. Let me show you this verse. Read this verse. See it there in the Word of God and allow the Word of God to do its thing because it's powerful. It's alive. Now, in all of these endeavors, it is the powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit at work through the sword of the word of God. So here you are. You've been given this sword, and it is a strong sword because it was created by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is powerfully at work when the sword is being used. It is used to defend, it is used to attack But we also now have a responsibility to be skillful in the use of that sword. You've probably seen the the movies and this this knight has got his new sword and his new armor. But now he has to go out and he has to train. He goes out there and he gets in all these battles and he learns how to wield his sword and how to parry and how how to jab and all this kind of stuff. This training that is necessary so that he's ready to go into battle. And I want us to think about things in those terms. And so here you are with this armor on and with this weapon of the word of God. But the question now is, how can I develop skill as a soldier of Christ wielding the sword of the spirit? There is skill that is needed. Now much of what I'm gonna say in this last section um, has been gleaned from this excellent book, um, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Donald Whitney. I would encourage you to get it. We don't have any copies. Um, but he has a couple of chapters in here called Bible Intake, and really, really, really helpful. I'm just going to touch on some of those things. He goes into much detail, much more practical detail about this, um, but I think that if, if you get your hands on this, this will be helpful. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to glean from him, I'll give him credit where he, he gives credit or he, he contributes here, but the point is this is helpful for us to think about how do we develop the skill of wielding the sword of the word of God. Now, this is one of the things that I agree with. He says the worst dust storm in history would happen if all the church members who were neglecting their Bibles dusted them off simultaneously. Um, That's a sad reality. Um, I, I would be thankful to say that I don't think that's quite as sad a reality at Gateway because we have, from the beginning, made an emphasis on the ministry of the Word of God and the Word of God being central. But that may be true for you. And maybe one of the things you need to do is to dust off your Bible and by that, you know, just kind of figurative meaning, you know, use it, use it, use it, all right? He also says accurately that Bible intake is not only the most important spiritual discipline, it's also the most broad. So it covers a lot of different things. And so we want to, we kind of want to begin with the broadest and and work down to, might want to say the 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 ultimate goal of all Bible intakes. Let's begin with, um, what do I need to develop the skill of wielding the sword? We want to begin with hearing God's word. It's the discipline now of hearing God's word. In the book of Nehemiah, after the people um, rebuilt the walls, set the gates in place, um, Ezra and uh, a number of other people constructed a platform, and in the middle of that platform was a a podium or a pulpit, you might say, 
And the word of God was something that people were not used to hearing. And so what happened was, is Ezra came in front of all the people to read the word of God. And the people were saying repeatedly, bring out the book, Ezra, bring out the book. They were hungry for the word of God. And we're told that they were attentive to it. Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 8. They, that's Ezra and the Levites, read from the book of the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. What it means is that they read it, they explained it. And then they actually went down to make sure that people understood it. So there was this kind of process. He would read it. The people that were there to help him would go down and explain it more. And then they would make sure that people understood it. Okay? But the people were hungry to hear God's word. They were also attentive to what it said. And friends, it is an elementary principle that Christians hunger to gather with one another as the church to hear the word of God proclaimed with care and passion. If you're a follower of Christ, you long to do that. Because you know it is through the preaching of God's word that God is actually at work speaking through you. There are other avenues, and we're going to talk about that. But it is a central reality of what God calls the church to be doing as we are gathered together. Okay? But you can also follow the teaching of respectable pastors on the radio, even via the internet, people like, I would suggest, like Alistair Begg or John MacArthur, someone like that, someone who's trustworthy, someone who's going to be exposing the word of God carefully. Um, but those should not be a substitute for being under the word of God in the context of the local church. Okay? Again, this is not about, about me necessarily as pastor here, but this is about the function and the role of a pastor with his flock. We can glean from other pastors and what they say, and they're far better preachers and, and far more, um, far more uh, breadth of, of, of resource for you, but there's something about the ministry of God's word that is live, that is present, that is now, that is part of God's plan for his people in the local context. And so that, that needs to be a priority, but these certainly can be supplemental avenues where the discipline of hearing God's word will help to equip you. And I listen to those guys. I listen to all sorts of people that are, I consider to be sound and helpful. But you can also hear the word of God on CD or MP3 if you like, um, or even on websites like esvbible.org. Now if you, have a, if you purchase an ESV Bible, you automatically get into esvbible.org. They usually have a little thing in the back of the Bible that you purchase, and you can log in. And one of the features there is that you can click this little, this little arrow, and it actually speaks the Word of God. And you can sit down, and you can listen to the Word of God just being read as you're doing different things. It's a wonderful tool. It's a really, really helpful tool. Okay? Um, so make this a priority when you're traveling, when you're driving to and from work, when you're washing the dishes, just be, just be hearing the word of God. Hearing the word of God is just, is basic, it's, it's foundational, um, and it should be what all believers are desiring. Secondly, not only hearing God's word, but reading God's word. Jesus often asked those claiming to be the people of God, have you not read? All right, he says that a lot. Pharisees come to him and challenge him with a question. He says, well, have you not read? <laughs> and in, that, and in saying that, what is he saying? 
he is expecting those same people to have read the word of God with understanding. There's an expectation that God has. If, if I'm gonna give you my revelation in word form and you're one of my children, I expect you to read it, right? The word of God is not like your car manual, right? You go buy a brand new car, you get in your car and the guy says, here's your manual. You're like, good, glove box, boom, all right, click. Uh, give me the keys, you just get in, you drive. And you just forget about it until some crisis comes along and what does that light mean? I don't know, get the manual out. And you figure out how the index works and all this kind of stuff. And No, God wants us to be reading his word. He's given it to us. Just pause. I mean, what, what a blessing it is to have, have God's instruction to understand his desires and, and his character just revealed over and over again in so many different ways that we, we see him revealed in all different avenues, in stories and in poetry and in prophecy and, and then to not pick it up means that we're not taking advantage of what God has given us, the life that we could have. So how often do you read the Bible on your own because you want to grow in your walk with God? Not because you're preparing for a Bible study, but simply because you want to grow. Now, I'm, I'm talking about reading it like you would a book, working through it chapter after chapter. There are many ways you can go about reading the Bible, but it must be purposeful. So let me give you just three things that may be helpful here, right? It's important that you set a time, right? Choose a time. Determine a time. You've know, you got to look at your schedule to figure out what, what, what works. And listen, I know, I know for, for, for a crowd like this, there are many of you that are saying, oh, this is, uh, boy, this is rough because I really struggle in this area. Okay? I get that. But I want to lovingly encourage you. Look at your life. Look at your schedule. Determine a time. First thing in the morning is good. During your lunch break could work. In the evening after the kids go to bed, you've got to think through what you can do with the circumstance in life. And some of you young moms are saying, I just, I'm just trying to find the time to exist, all right? I mean, you know, this baby is consuming me. But you can find time to, to, to you know, put the, the Word of God maybe on as a CD or to open it up while you're, I don't know, while you're burping your baby or something like that. I don't know. You figure it out, right? You find some time that will work. But why? Because you know that it's It's necessary. You need the life that comes from the word of God. But it needs to be a habit that you develop. So many people would recommend, and I would too, that having a morning reading plan is helpful because if you some, for some reason you miss it, you still have the rest of the day to make it up. If you say, well, mine's going to be at night and then things don't work out, then you kind, of, you kind of lose it all. And there's the consistency that you want to have. And we're not talking here about reading. You don't have to read, you know, 15 chapters in order to say, oh, God, you know, I've, I proved to you that I love you. It's just taking time to, just to read. Now, we'll, we'll move into to something else, and that would be it's important that you have a plan. What are you going to read? You know, just open the Bible anywhere each day may not be the most helpful thing. Um, but consistently reading in a plan is a good thing. And there are many plans you can follow. Many times, Bibles today, when you get them, will have a reading plan either in the front or the back of the Bible. It's right there. Um, and if you're okay with marking in your Bible, you can check off the days as you go along. Um, there are other ways you can do that. If you read four chapters a day, you can get through the Bible in the year. Um, you can uh, read five 
chapters every day in five different places. Genesis, the law, Joshua, that would be history, Job, that's poetry, Isaiah, um, which would be the prophets, and then Matthew, which is the New Testament. That's what my parents did, is they read five chapters every day in those different areas, and they just slowly worked through the Bible, and you usually got through that um, in less than a year, uh, maybe about 10, 11 months or so, okay? The point here is, is have a plan, find a plan that's gonna work for you, and do it. The third thing is this. It's important that as you are reading, that you're looking for one aspect of your reading to meditate on. So you're like, you know, you're asking yourself the question, as I'm reading, and you're just reading, um, what, what is one thing that God wants me to dwell on today from my reading? Okay, so you're looking for something, not just kind of like, oh, I, I read that chapter, right? You know what I'm talking about. I read that chapter, you, what was it about? I have no clue, but I read it, right? Um, no, we want to read with understanding, but you want to read it, and there's, there's a difference to what we're going to be talking about next, but you know, if you took, if you took the, the Bible on CD or maybe the ones that are online, the MP3, and if you listen to it just from beginning to end, it's 72 hours. Now, I'm not encouraging you to go take a retreat and listen for 72 hours, but think about it. 72 hours really isn't that much. It really isn't. When you think about it, how many hours in a day? 24? So how many days would 72 hours be? Huh? Three? And then you got to sleep, right? So maybe that would be six. So if you really want to go on a retreat, six days, sleep, listen to the Bible all day long. You'll lay by the pool and listen. Just don't fall asleep, all right? You can be swimming as long as your head's above water and you can hear. All right? You can do it. It's not that much. The point is find some way just to read. And this is, this is the breadth that we want to we wanna pursue with our discipline of wielding the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Then we move from reading to studying. Studying. Okay, now, um, I think it's helpful here to, to recognize how Don Whitney describes this. He says, reading the Bible is cruising the width of a clear lake, spark, uh, a clear sparkling lake in a motorboat, and that studying the Bible is like slowly crossing that same lake in a glass-bottomed boat. So there's reading where you're just kind of working your way through, and now there's studying where you're kind of working slowly, and you're parking at times, and you're looking down. And you're taking a closer look. And Jerry Bridges says, reading gives breadth, but study gives depth. We need both. Acts chapter 17, the apostle Paul um, with Silas, after being chased out of Thessalonica, comes to the town of Berea. And he preached there, and this is what we're told in Acts 17, 11. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word of God with eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They were not just willing to take the person preaching um, just because of that personality. They were saying, well, you know what? We're gonna go home and we're gonna study what it says and we're gonna come to a conclusion based on our study. And I commend you, friends, to have that same attitude, to be Bereans, to hear what is being proclaimed here on a Sunday morning or even in a Bible study, but to go home and to open up your Bible and you study and you come to determine what God says in his word. Now, certainly I want you to trust that, that I'm trying my best to do everything I can to reflect God's truth to you. But I am frail and I'm gonna make some mistakes. Right? And there are gonna be times when you're gonna need to say, Rod, I'm not sure that that scripture actually says what you said it says and we can have a good discussion. 
It will probably involve coffee, but it will be a good discussion. But we need to have this attitude of being Bereans. And there are some contexts, there are some pastors that I, I have known in the past that say, listen, you don't listen to anyone else. I'm your pastor, you listen to me. Boy, you're moving in cult territory when you're talking like that. God's called each individual to be a student of God's word and to study it carefully, okay? And Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter four, this is after his charge to Timothy to preach the word, he says now as he's closing it up, and this is some of the final words of Paul. He's in prison, and he says, when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas, and also the books, and above all the parchments. Here he is, knowing that death's door is just around the corner, and he's asking Timothy to bring something to him. Just think about all the things that Paul's been through. He's seen the resurrected Christ. Uh, he had experienced the Holy Spirit's power through miracles countless times. He'd been used by God to write the scriptures. But here he is in his last days, and what, do you, what does he want? He wants the books, and he wants the parchments. And our best understanding of that is that the books represent the word of God, and the parchments basically are the record of Christian teaching that comes from the books that are the word of God and the collection there as, as God has allowed him to do that. So it could be some of the books that are actually contained in the New Testament that he was talking about at that point in time. Now here's the point. If Paul needed the scriptures, surely you and I need it and should discipline ourselves to do it. And if he was hungering to study them, then we should. Now, you might feel inadequate. You say, well, I've never been to seminary. How could I even compare to you or one of the elders, Pastor Rod? I understand uh, that maybe that feeling of inadequacy, but I, I don't want that to hinder you from the delight of learning your Bible. Just start where you are and just start growing in your understanding of the breadth and the depth of the Word of God. And there are countless resources available for you to, 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 to study. Study Bibles are a great way to go, computer programs and and you can attend Bible studies, but there's, there's all sorts of things that now are available to you to, to dig deeper. Now the goal here is not head knowledge. We're gonna get to what the goal is, but the goal is far more important than simply have a, having a knowledge of the Bible. So we move now from, from studying to this, this fourth one, and that would be memorizing God's word. Memorizing God's word. Proverbs 22, verses 17 and following says this, incline your ear, and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge, for it will be pleasant if you keep them with you, if all of them are ready on your lips, that your trust may be in the Lord. I have made them known to you today, even to you. There's something about having the word of God ready, having it stored in your heart so that something comes up and boom, you can quote that passage of scripture. As a pastor, there have been times when it's been really frustrating. Sometimes it's in counseling, sometimes it's more in an evangelistic context, and I'm, I'm like, oh, what was that verse again? You know what I'm talking about. It's like, oh man, you know, I wish I had memorized it. And maybe I had memorized it, but I've forgotten it, or I, I'm not quoting it quite right. I'm kind of giving the fuzzy definition or, or of it, and it's like, oh, it didn't quite come out what it, what it says. There's something about memorizing that's crisp, that's clear, that's helpful, that's ready for you in your own walk, but it's also helpful in the midst of battle. Just like Jesus said, ah, but isn't it written, man shall not live by bread alone, 
Okay? He, he pulled it right out of that resource that was there. And by the way, that was not some supernatural ability. Jesus grew up in wisdom and stature like a young man, studied the scripture, and as he studied the scripture, he had a great reservoir that he could now use in speaking against Satan. Okay, just think about that. So memorizing scripture strengthens your faith because it repeatedly reinforces the truth, often just when you need to hear it again. Then there is meditation, meditation. Now I realize that meditation has taken on kind of a new uh, idea in the context of, of the world maybe as opposed to what God means by meditation in his word. Um, and those might want to say new age movement or cult kind of arrangements of meditation. Um, those exercises of meditation are doing their best to empty their mind of everything. Um, when we're told in scripture that we are to meditate, the idea is that we're filling our mind with God and his truth. Huge difference, right? So meditation is a couple of ways you can, you can describe it. We actually, the things that we've learned here. Um, I, I love tea, some of you know that. Um, I love drinking tea, I love drinking coffee, but um, one of the things I do with tea is you know, I take the bag and I put the bag in the cup and I pour hot water on it. Now, different people like their tea at different strengths, right? Just imagine if you take a tea bag and you pour water on it, let it sit there for maybe 30 seconds and you pull it out. That's like hearing the word. You Put it back in, another 30 seconds, that's like reading the word. Leave it in maybe for a minute and a half, that's like studying the word. When we're talking here about meditation, all right, I'm one of those guys that leaves the bag in the cup, okay? That's how you get the best tea. You don't take the bag out, you leave the bag in because you want it to continue to steep and continue to, to allow flavor to be there, right? So there's this idea then of, of meditation that's just constantly uh, flowing out of the word that has been read that's been heard, that's been studied, that's been memorized. And when the word of God is taken in, now we begin to allow it to marinate. We allow it to, to, to do some things and we squeeze it and we kind of get everything we can out of it. There are two classic passages that talk about meditation of the word of God. Joshua 1.8, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. So that's kind of a, a positive approach here to the importance of meditating on the word of God. And then Psalm 1-2. I'll begin at verse 1. Blessed is the man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the, of the ungodly, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And I think one of the best pictures of that meditation, it's, a, it's not the most wonderful, but it's a little better than the maggots. It's a cow that is chewing its cud. And some of you know that a cow has four stomachs. Okay? So don't invite a cow to your next barbecue. All right? A cow will go out and graze, and cows fool us, because when you're driving down the road out in the country, and you see cows that are just sitting around, and they're just sitting there, just going, guess what? They're not being lazy. They're eating, again, because they eat. They eat the fodder or the grass, 
and it goes in their stomach, and they go find a little place to sit down, and then they regurgitate it up, and they eat it some more, and then they swallow, and then they regurgitate it up again, and they swallow. It's a lovely picture, right? Everyone ready for lunch now? But this is the picture of meditation. This is what God wants us to be doing with his word. Throughout the day, the things that I've been hearing and reading and studying and memorizing, I am now bringing up and I'm chewing on it some more and some more. And then I have, maybe I have to go back to work again. I've taken my break or my lunch and now I'm back to work and I'm doing my work and then I, may, I have a little respite and the word of God comes out again and I'm chewing on it some more. That's the idea of meditation. God wants us to be people who are meditating on his word. Now the ultimate goal of all of this Bible intake is this, application of God's word. It's not head knowledge. Head knowledge alone will leave you empty. And actually probably will leave you arrogant and empty. But the goal of all of this is so that you will apply what God says to your life, to your battle, to your circumstance. Without application, you and I will not change. That's why James describes it this way, James chapter 1, verse 22 and following. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. A lot of us did that this morning. We looked intently. We want to make sure that hair is in place. And we won't go any further. But there's a lot of things we did in front of that mirror this morning. He looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, it's talking about the word of God, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. And so the mirror here is the mirror of God's word. And the idea that James is trying to get to us is that we don't go to the mirror and see a problem and just say, ah, you know, no big deal. No, the mirror is there to reflect back to us so that we can see what needs to be affected, what needs to change. And a child of God pursuing God is going to say, thank you, God, for revealing that to me. Now I want to change. And whatever it is and however God wants me to pursue that and and make that change, he's now challenging me to do. He wants me to apply what I'm learning to my life. It's application. Another way to illustrate it would be this. You know, my wife, who is a great cook, I think, as you can see, she's a great cook, and when she cooks her meal... She spends time, 45 minutes, hour and a half, sometimes three hours. All right, I'm going a little bit too far here, right? Um, but the thing is, sometimes she, you know, she's cooking, and she prepares that meal, and then it's all done, and it's sitting on the stove, and we say to ourselves, eh, I don't want that. The whole point of cooking a meal is what? That's the application. The whole reason God gave us his word is so that we would feed on it, and by feeding on it, we would be nourished through his word. That's where God wants to take us. He doesn't prepare a meal for us to simply say, eh, I don't want it. He wants to prepare a meal for us so that we will feast on it, and through feasting on it, we will be strengthened and nourished, and we need it daily, and we need it many times during the day. So all of these 
arenas of practice are necessary to be skillful with the sword of the Spirit. I want to close just with a couple of quotes. The first one is Charles Spurgeon, and he's talking about the Word of God and how people often want to defend the Word of God. And I want you to hear what he has to say. The Word of God can take care of itself and will do so if we preach it and cease defending it. See you, that lion. They have caged him for his preservation. Shut him up behind iron bars to secure him from his foes. See how a band of armed men have gathered together to protect the lion. What a clatter they make with their swords and spears. These mighty men are intent upon defending a lion. O fools and slow of heart, open that door. Let the Lord of the forest come forth free. Who will declare to encounter him? Who will dare to encounter him? Uh, What does he want with your guardian care? Let the pure gospel go forth in all its lion-like majesty, and it will soon clear its own way and ease itself of its adversary. And what he's saying is the word of God and the gospel is like a caged lion. Let out. Just let the word of God do what it does. And we know that it will because the source of the word of God is the Holy Spirit and the power behind the word of God is divine. And you let out this caged lion of the word of God and he will accomplish all the things that he is endeavoring to do. And friends, we need to be people of the word, not only for us, but also in the midst of the battle. That's why, as we began our church, we came up with this as our mission statement. We exist to glorify God by building a community of believers who are actively committed to knowing, applying, and proclaiming the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. It needs to be proclaimed in the context of church. It needs to be talked about in the context of home group and small groups, and it needs to be seen in the context of evangelism. It needs to be what is used. It's God's way, it's God's word, it is powerful. And may we fight the battle skillfully, strategically, resting on the strength that only comes from God. Lord, help us as we take a fresh look at your word. Lord, may we go home today a little bit more eager, a little bit more purposeful, a little bit more um, confident that the Bible that we have is not simply a means of knowing you and a means of knowing life, but Lord, it is the very vehicle through which you want to strengthen us and you want us to fight in the midst of the battle that is before us. So Lord, help us to love your word. Help us to learn your word. Help us to to live your word. And Lord, help us to leave your word in the lives of people so that they too, by virtue of the word proclaimed, will come to know you as their Lord and Savior. We thank you, Lord, for the great privilege of wearing the armor which we're thankful for. But we're also, Lord, thankful for the great honor and responsibility you've given us to be wielders of this sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. Lord, we need your help. In your name, amen.